0: Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. A friend of mine uh, asked me between services if this would be a men or pigs message. Uh, I assured him it would not be. Actually, I had completely forgotten that this was Father's Day. And uh, the passage that I selected for this uh, particular morning some weeks ago really has nothing whatever to do with fatherhood. It's a story of David and Bathsheba and their notorious uh, affair. This text this morning that we're going to look at has to do with uh, avoiding the scarlet letter, how to avoid uh, adultery. Actually, I don't like to use the word affair uh to talk about adultery. Uh a coming out party is an affair but believe me adultery is no uh, is no party it's no fun and i uh, i know the heartache that this particular passage will cause for so many people it will dredge up memories uh that you would like to forget but it's a passage that i think we just have to deal with there's so many pressures today from the media from the world outside of us to uh, dishonor our marriages. We need to have something to keep stiffening our our spine, giving us the courage and faith to face into our marriages and make them everything that God wants them to be. So, uh, with that in mind, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the story of uh, David and Bathsheba. Uh, I uh, Of my... Three closest friends in seminary, all of them today are out of the ministry. Uh, All of them were involved in adulterous relationships. None of them are married now to their first mates. And uh, since that time, I have seen many more of my my friends fall. I keep asking myself, uh, why? Why do we do this thing? Why would we trash our families? Our marriages, our careers, our lives, for a transient, passionate relationship. Why would we, like Esau, sell out for a single meal? Why do we do it? Well, I think there's some clues in this passage, and I think a great deal of uh, help here. Let's begin reading with uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. Uh, It begins, uh, the story begins in the spring, when we're told King's... uh, went off to war. Spring of the year was the time when uh, cavalry could be mobilized, armies could be sent into the fields, and normally kings uh, engaged in war at that time. But David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. We don't know why. It's a little bit out of David's character. Perhaps he was just uh, tired, and uh, so he stayed home. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now, don't be concerned about David falling off the roof. In those days, uh, houses had flat tops, and uh, in the evening when it became stifling hot within the houses, often people would go up on the roof and uh, they would catch, uh, catch the evening breezes there. And uh, David, apparently, after a short uh, nap, went out to stroll around the roof of his palace, from which he had a commanding view of the rest of the city of David. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, I don't think of her as too immodest. In those days, there was no indoor plumbing, of course. People normally uh, filled a basin with water and took it out in the backyard, and that's where they bathed. I don't know if Bathsheba knew that David could see into her courtyard. We're not told. The text is silent. It may simply be that she was uh, doing what she normally uh, did. Uh, archaeologists digging in the city of Oxib found a little statuette of a woman sitting in a basin taking a bath. It dates from David's time, 1000 B.C., and so we can assume this was normal normal practice. And uh, David peeked over the parapet of his roof and he saw this very pretty uh, young lady taking a bath. Uh, The text tells us the woman was very beautiful. And uh, David's motor started to run. And he sent someone to find out about her. Uh, The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Actually, the text suggests that David already knew who this was. Uh, she was someone else's wife in the first place, and that, and that should have put a stop to the matter. Adultery was uh, against the law in Israel. She was also the wife of one of one of David's old army buddies, Uriah, one of the, his mighty men who had gathered around him at a very critical stage of his life when he was in exile, fleeing from Saul. And a very good friend, one of his best friends. And so he must have known Bathsheba, and he must have known that she was uh, Uriah's uh, wife. But uh, David was in a state of mind, thinking that he should deny himself nothing. And he sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. And the text says, uh, rather quaintly, she had... Purified herself from her uncleanness, which suggests that she was at a time of the month when she would most easily conceive. And uh, she did, in fact, conceive. She went back home the moment conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Uh, just one night of uh, passion, one uh, quick affair, and it was over, or so David thought. He was sitting in his Oval Office one day, and his private telephone rang, and he picked it up, and uh, it was Bathsheba, and she said, guess what, I'm pregnant. And David panicked. Because, as I said, uh, adultery was against the law. As a matter of fact, it was a capital offense in Israel, and no one was above the law. In most, most Oriental countries, the king makes the law. He's above the law, but not in Israel. The law of the king in Deuteronomy 17 specified that the king was to listen to the law every day. He was to hear it read and he was to act accordingly. He was subject to it. David knew he was in big trouble. Uriah had been at the front for several uh, months. He would not return for several months. Anybody in Israel could count up to nine, and uh, David had to take action. David was no fool. And uh, so he immediately sent uh, to the front, sent messengers to General Joab. Verse six, and said, "Send me Uriah the Hittite." And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. He sent off to General Joab, said, uh, asked him to send his off one of his key officers, uh, Uriah, home to report on the law, or report on the war. Which, uh, Uriah did, just a very brief, uh, briefing. And then David, uh, said to him, Uriah, go down to your house and, uh, wink, wink, wash your feet, clean yourself up. You see, he brought Uriah home ostensibly to report on the war, but in fact to put him in Bathsheba's arms. Because if he could get Uriah to come home and sleep with Bathsheba, then he would be home free. But the problem was, this old fellow was a much more noble man than than David. stalwart fellow, and he refused to go home. Uriah left the palace. A gift was sent from the king. Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants did not go to his house. He went to the barracks, rolled out a sleeping bag, and... Slept with the rest of the rest of the troops. You can't help but wonder why there may have been palace rumors of Bathsheba's dalliance. We you know, we don't know, or it may simply be that uh, Uriah was an officer and a gentleman, and he would not uh, sleep with his wife while his troops were in the field. But in any case, uh, when David was told, he panicked. Uh, He said to Uriah, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As, As surely as I live, I will not do such a thing, and that must have speared David right in the heart. So David said to him, Stay here another day and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. He invited him up to the palace, and they swapped war stories and quaffed a few. And and then when he had uh, Uriah sufficiently uh, smashed, he started him out the door, kind of pushed him toward uh, home, and this uh, noble old soldier would not uh, go. In the evening, Uriah went, went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and he didn't go home and now David began to see he was in serious trouble and what he did was to put out a contract on this man's on this man's life he realized that Uriah had to die because dead men tell no tales and so he uh, he sent a message in the, in the hand of uh, Uriah back to, to Joab, And in it he wrote, verse 15, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. Carried his own death warrant to the front. So while Joab uh, had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite was, was killed. Joab's intelligence told him that there were certain parts of the walls that were more strongly defended, so he put Uriah and his company in front of the wall, had them attack the wall, and, uh, there were a number of men that died, and Uriah was killed in the, in the, in the fighting. So there were, there were a number of widows, orphans that, that wept that night in, in Israel. Joab's plan involved a greater loss of life, but it wasn't as obviously treacherous as David's plan. Joab knew that someone would see through David's plan, and so he concocted, he actually changed the orders, but he accomplished the goal of killing Uriah the Hittite. Then Joab sent David a full account of the battle, verse 38, I'm sorry, 18. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, because uh, Joab's strategy was poor. He'd, got too close to the wall, and he knew that David would uh, would be highly critical of his, of his actions. But he said, when you tell him what happened, just be sure and tell him that Uriah the Hittite is dead. When he says, why did you get so close to the wall, if he asks you this, then say to him, well, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the messenger set out. He told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The men said to David... The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David said to the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage uh, Joab. Yeah, incredible hardness of, of heart. That's the way it is in war, Joab. You win a few, you lose a few. C'est la vie. That's what happens in warfare. Isn't it amazing? This is David, the man after God's own heart, a great lover of, of God. And he now has committed adultery, told an atrocious lie, murdered his best friend, responsible for the death of some of Israel's finest young uh, young men. Totally untouched. Unmoved by it all. You see, that's what sin does to us. We think we can get away with a little sin. We think we can temporize with it. We can, we can dash in and dash out without being affected by it. One night of passion. But it doesn't work that way. Sin begets sin. As Jesus put it, uh, once you begin to sin, then sin begins to master you. Paul makes the same argument in Romans 6. can't play around with sin. can't control it. It will control you. As Augustine said, sin is the punishment for sin. If we choose to sin, God will let us go. If we don't acknowledge it, we don't repent of it, we don't deal of it, he'll just let us go. And, and, and we're capable of atrocious acts. I have uh, wounded spouses sometimes tell me, I don't understand why my husband can be so mean-spirited. He used to be so tender. What's happened to him? That's what's happened to him. Sin enslaves us all. You can't temporize with sin. You can't have a little sin. If we don't deal with it, it will destroy us. Well... uh, Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him for the prescribed period of time. suggestion here of inappropriate haste, but they had to get on with it. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to the house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And they were home scot-free. Nobody knew. But there's an ominous footnote here at the end of the chapter, the thing that David had done. displeased the Lord. David, in reflecting back on the year that intervened between uh, the murder of Uriah and, and his being found out, wrote Psalm 32. He, he, he writes in that psalm what, what, what he was thinking and feeling during that time. And, and he was just beginning to fall apart on the inside. He said anxiety had dried up his moisture. He was deeply depressed and anxious. He couldn't sleep at night. He was fearful making very foolish decisions and, and doing some very strange things, things very much unlike David. If you read on into the chapter, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 26, there's a story there that's displaced chronologically because the writer wanted to get on with the story of uh, David and Bathsheba and wrap the whole thing up in one context. But uh, a bit, uh, just a bit uh, later, right, right after his marriage to Bathsheba, this, uh, Joab conquered the citadel that guarded the water supply of the city of Rabbah. And uh, sent a telegram off to David, and he said, Come quickly, we're about to take the city, muster the troops. Again. David gathered up the rest of the troops, and they marched across the Jordan River to the city of Rabbah, and besieged the city, and it fell. And uh, we're told that uh, if you read our text, our translation, it says David put them uh, to work with picks and axes and shovels, and he had them work in the brick kilns. But the Hebrew text says he put them under axes and picks, and he put them into the brick cones. He massacred the whole population of Rabbah. That's so unlike David, who was always willing to extend mercy to to those that he was in conflict with. And you just see this progressive hardening of the heart where this man is capable of doing anything, and that's the problem with sin. We can't, can't control it. We began to do things we never thought we would do, horrendous things that just tear our hearts out and destroy those around us. There's no end of of what we will do to look out for ourselves. This went on for a year, and uh, finally David was found out. Uh, Nathan, his good friend and personal chaplain, dug up the facts Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David when he came, told him this trumped-up story of a a rich man that had a little ewe lamb. And it was a pet lamb, and he loved this little lamb. He slept with it, really cared for it. Traveling stranger came through. It struck me this time in reading through the story. That's Nathan's metaphor for David's transient passion. A traveling stranger, a thought, came through and uh, the rich man, in order to to feed uh, this traveler, kill the little. He took took the lamb, stole the lamb from his neighbor, the little pet lamb, and he and he fed it to the stranger, though he had folds full of flocks. And David was outraged. His his wrath flamed out against that man. You can read the. The text, verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Now, sheepnapping was not a capital offense in, in Israel. It just required fourfold uh, restitution. But you, you can see what was happening. See, David is uh, he's turning his severity on others instead of on himself. That should have been the... The severity that he exercised toward his own sin, you know, and that's what happens to us. We become very hypocritical, very sensitive to other people's sins, very harsh and judgmental of their sins when we're struggling inwardly with guilt and disobedience. And, uh, Nathan said to him, put his, verse 7, put his long bony finger under his nose, laid his life on the line. This was the king of the most powerful nation in the Middle East at this time. David ruled everything from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt. Nathan put his finger under David's nose and he said, you're the man. And David crumbled. For a year, he'd been hiding and dodging and shucking and trying to get away from this thing and defending it and But when Nathan found him out, when he said, you're the man, David, just collapsed. He put his face in his hands. He just fell apart at the seams, and he began to weep, and he said, I've sinned. I've sinned. No defense, no special pleading, (laughs) no justifications. He said, I've sinned. And in one of the Psalms that he wrote to commemorate this occasion, he, he becomes even more specific. He says, I've sinned against God. He'd sinned against Uriah, he sinned against Bathsheba, he'd sinned against the child, he'd sinned against the nation, he'd sinned against himself. But ultimately, his sin was against God. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David said, I've sinned. And his confession was interrupted by this great outflow of grace and love. Nathan said to him, Verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's when David wrote those words that Bill read to us a moment ago. We call it Psalm 32. He just poured his heart out to the Lord. Oh, how happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Oh, how happy is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my soul. David paid a terrible price for that sin. He never fully recovered his kingdom. He lost the respect of many of the people and that he had formerly ruled. He lost uh, the respect of his children. Uh, he struggled terribly. But he was forgiven. And some of his most significant psalms were written during this this time. He was fully restored. But you see, he first had to acknowledge the sin and repent of it. No defense. No justification. No special pleading. No special circumstances. I have sinned, he said. And Nathan said, you're forgiven. Uh, read something FB Meyer wrote a couple of weeks ago. sin he says is dark, dangerous and damnable. but it cannot staunch the love of God. It cannot change the fact of a love that is not of yesterday but dates from eternity itself. The only thing that can really hurt the soul is to keep its confession pin up within itself. if only with stuttering, broken utterance it dares to cry. Be merciful to me, the sinner, for the sake of the blood that was shed. Instantly, we become as white as snow on the alpine peaks. Some of you may be sitting here this morning thinking back over the past weeks or months, and uh, like David, you've been harboring that sin. I want you to know that the only way back, the only freedom from guilt, is to acknowledge, to confess. To call that sin what God calls it, dark and dangerous and damnable, and repent of it. And then God can begin to rebuild your life, but only then. You know, I've seen this happen so often. I I read through David's story, and I think, my goodness, you know, talk about deja vu. I think I've heard this story over and over and over and over again. It always follows the same track. So much so that I, Carolyn and I, did some thinking about this one time, and I sat down and wrote up what I consider to be the scenario. And i want to read it to you, if, if I may. It's always I say. If I don't quote myself, who in the world will? <laughs> Moral collapse is rarely a blowout. It's more like a slow leak. The result of a thousand small indulgences, the consequences of which are never immediately apparent. Hardly anyone plans an adulterous affair. They transition into it. It begins with attraction. It's not so much lust as infatuation that brings us down. We find ourselves drawn to someone sensitive and understanding, someone who listens and seems to care. Be some Bible toting someone, some praying someone, it can be a minister, or someone engaged in ministry. We're seduced by that attraction and led on by subtle degrees. We're especially vulnerable if we've neglected our, our own marriages, permitting them to, to grow dull and unfriendly. That's the first step, it's attraction. Just attraction. Someone comes along who really seems to care, who listens to you. In contrast to your spouse who does not. Someone who really seems to care. And attraction becomes fantasy. We begin to imagine ourselves with that person in. Boy, it feels so good. You know, fictionalized affairs always seem good. That's that's their fundamental deception. The fantasies soften us and our convictions erode. We're then in a frame of mind to listen to those longings. And having listened, we have no will to resist. Then there are those quiet meetings. Lunches, you know. Sometimes even business lunches. There's somebody in the office that really seems caring. So you just go out to lunch, just a friendly thing. There's something about eating together that has a special intimacy to it. I think that's why the Lord uses that analogy of eating with us and drinking with us. And it's a highly dangerous situation, really. And I know in some cases business demands it. But I I think we need to be aware, alert to the dangers in eating together with Someone of the opposite sex, per- particularly someone to whom we're attracted. And particularly if our marriages are in, in trouble. It's just such, a, such an easy bridge to cross to the development of greater intimacy, the sharing of inner conflict, marital disappointment, and other deep hurts. You start talking about your marriages and how much you're hurting at home and how much you know affirmation you need. And, and suddenly the relationship shifts. And uh, we're two lonely people in need of one another's love. As Lewis McBurney says, that's as decisive as reaching for a zipper. Then comes the yielding, and with that yielding, the guilt and rationalizations, we have to justify our behavior to ourselves and to others by blaming the pressures of life or the limitations of our spouses. Everything but our own wrongdoing becomes our, our reason. All our actions must be explained And made to look good. But our hearts know. We know. There are moments when our wills soften and we long to set things right. If we don't listen to our hearts, there's a metallic hardening and incorruption. Our wrongdoing altering its form and quality, evolving into dark narcissism and horrifying cruelty. We don't care who gets hurt as long as we get what we want. Remember David? Liar, murderer, adulterer, fiend. And ultimately, there's disclosure. I just want you to know that. Nobody gets away with adultery forever. Nobody. Sooner or later, every adulterer has to face the music. The horrible experience of being found out, a credit card receipt, a telephone call, an untimely encounter in our deceit is discovered. At first, we deny any wrongdoing. Oh my, how many times have I heard that? There's no one else. Let me tell you something. Men and women in trouble will lie. They will lie. First, we vehemently deny any wrongdoing. There's no one else, we swear. Then we dissemble. Well, it's platonic, we say. We're just friends. But inevitably one's dishonor is shouted from the housetops. There's no place to hide from the shame. And let's not fool ourselves. Though men and women in our culture seem unashamed by adultery, have forgotten how to blush, to use Jeremiah's phrase, they never forget adulterers and they never trust them again. Remember Teddy Kennedy? Remember Gary Hart? Oh yeah, nominally people will talk about adulterous affairs as though it's an okay thing to do, but frankly, they do not trust people that have cheated on their spouses. It's a fact. Even in our culture, our ungodly culture, that's true. It's too much to lose, way too much to lose. So the question is, how can how can we avoid adultery? Let Let me give you four or five ways. A friend of mine says we're always less than 20 minutes away from horrible failure. Another friend of mine says it doesn't take me that long. (laughs) The main thing is to know how vulnerable we are and to always be guarded, always be guarded. We're uh, overthrown because uh, we don't uh, guard the gate. First thing to do is guard your relationship with God. As As the proverb says, guard your heart, guard your heart, because out of it, for the issues of life. I've often commented on what I, I think is a very close relationship between sexuality and spirituality. Both are great mysteries. Both cannot be understood apart from revelation. Both are intertwined. I really think that our sexuality is just a small representation of that greater need that we have for God, that urge to merge with him. One is a picture. Our sexuality is a picture of our, of our spirituality. Charles Williams, one of C.S. Lewis's uh, friends, says sensuality and sanctity are so closely entwined that our motives in some case can hardly be separated. And, and I, I really believe that devotion to Christ has the effect of, of sublimating a lot of our other passions and lusts and drives. It doesn't totally answer the problem, because we're human beings and we're fallen human beings, and we'll all, you, know, you never outlive your libido, I don't think—and you know, there's always that that stress and the pressure of the world. But I really do believe that, it, that a devotional life, a life of worship, centering upon the Lord Jesus, is one of the best defenses we have, because it takes a lot of those longings and desires and hungers and yearnings that we have and turns them into devotion for Him. The second thing we can do is guard our minds against romantic and sexual fantasies, which the world constantly plays to us, tries to evoke those images in our minds. Uh, the, as the proverb puts it, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Our predominant thought determines our actions. There's a great debate raging now whether or not pornography actually has any effect upon our sexual behavior. I want to tell you it does on the authority of the word of God. It does. I don't care what the research shows. I think the research is flawed personally. The fact is it does have an effect upon us. And it's something we've got to uh, deal with. Jesus said if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Deal harshly with yourself. Don't look at things that stir up erotic fantasies. Don't go to movies that make it difficult for you to get those pictures out of your minds. You know, and more and more we have to be the gatekeepers these days. We can't expect our society to do that for us. We keep screening out this stuff because it just has a way, you know, and, in the, and the problem is movies, television, it's always presented in such a favorable way. Fictionalized evil always looks so good. And conversely, fictionalized good always looks so dull and boring. And, you know, you see these things going on, people involved in affairs and homosexual uh, affairs and whatnot, and it looks like it's all right. It might even spice up your marriage a little bit, you know. But I tell you what, you just have to sit in the offices of some of our staff people and, and the peer counselors and others that are involved in ministry to people to see the awful, horrible results in people's lives, tragedies, because they have permitted their minds to be filled with these fantasies, and the fantasies become fact after... After a time. So we just have got to guard our minds. Our predominant thought determines our immediate action, so we've got to deal with the thoughts. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, Martin Luther's sidekick, In talking about his erotic thoughts, that old Adam is much too strong for young Philip. And that's true. Sometimes we are overwhelmed by erotic thoughts and uh, the temptation uh, to think those thoughts is not sin. But uh, as Luther went on to say to to Philip, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building nests in your hair. I don't have that problem, but some of you may Third, we can cultivate affection for our spouses, daily rekindling the love and passion of our marriages, maintaining its romance. That's the best defense. Read Proverbs 5. Love the wife of your youth, the wise man says. Keep your marriage friendly. It's much easier to face into the temptations out there. It takes a lot of work. It might take some counsel, some therapy, some help from outside. Rekindle the romance of of that relationship. Watch out for infatuations. This is four. Are you attracted to someone other than your spouse? Watch out. Find yourself dressing a certain way when you're going to meet that person. You're kind of spiffing yourself up. You get defensive when, you're, when your spouse tells you that something's not quite right in this relationship, that maybe you're too, too attached. Those are early warning signs. So friendship turning into an infatuation. One of the church fathers, I don't, I don't recognize his name, but he, a long, long time ago, this would be second century, 80, second century, uh, he said, we must be on guard against deception and friendships, especially when they are contracted between persons of different sexes, no matter what the pretext may be. Satan tricks those who begin with virtuous love. If they're not very prudent, fond love will first be injected, next sensual love, and then carnal love. Satan does this subtly and tries to introduce impurity. By insensible degrees, just kind of a phasing in of an infatuation that becomes an erotic relationship. Fifth, we can guard against intimacy with anyone other than our mates. The secrets of our hearts, the deep longings and desires of your life belong to your mate and to no one else. We can be alert during periods of unusual pressure and pre-pray those pressure points. I, uh, I still remember one of our Wednesday morning sessions when a man stood up and he said, I'm going to a certain town. There's a woman there that just drives me berserk and I'm scared. She's really attractive to me and I want you men to pray for me. And he was simply uh, uh, protecting himself, himself during a time of uh, exceptional pressure and temptation. We can regularly rehearse the consequences of an affair. I'll tell you, every once in a while, it's good to let that run through your mind. What will it cost you? Let me tell you, it'll cost us everything. Everything. It isn't worth it. Uh, we received a letter uh, in our office some years ago, and just there's just one paragraph in it that struck me. This was a man that had been unfaithful to his wife. And uh, she had divorced him and left him and wanted nothing to do with him. And he said, I have to live the rest of my life now without the person I truly love and that used to love me. And I have no chance to undo the wrong I've committed. I I lost the best thing that ever happened to me, my best friend. Believe me, it is not worth it. We can find a friend on whom we can uh, unload our darkest secrets. There's something about uh, talking about our sins and the thoughts that are going on in our minds that keeps us from acting them out. May not prevent them wholly, but has some effect upon our our actions. And you need someone who's bold enough to listen to you and then ask you if you lied, because again, men and women in trouble will lie. We can publicize our home life, talk lovingly of our spouses, and surround ourselves with mementos, pictures, and reminders of our marriage. There's something about letting people know that you are honest to goodness married and you're going to stay that way. That's, that's, a, that's a defense and that you really cherish your, your spouse, and you cherish your family, and your children. And then bottom line, we can ask God to guard us every moment of the day. Watch and pray, Jesus said, that you enter not into temptation. As I said in the beginning, we fall because we're, we're unguarded. We're in terrible danger, all of us, every moment of the day, whether we're young or old or single or married in the dumps or, or on a roll. We're frail and we're unfinished, and no matter how willing the spirit, the flesh is, is weak. Our safety doesn't lie in keeping ourselves safe, but in our Lord's safekeeping. And I, and I just can't leave it this morning without saying something to those of you who have already been through a disastrous uh, uh, relationship and affair that has destroyed your, your well being and perhaps has destroyed your marriage and your thinking has destroyed your, uh, your life. Or you may be in the middle of one right now or you're contemplating an affair. I just want to say this there's only one remedy. There's only one remedy. And that's acknowledgement and repentance. That's the only way back. We must hate what we've done and turn from it in disgust. That's what Paul calls a godly sorrow over sin. You know, there's a worldly sorrow over sin, which is just remorse over the consequences of our action or having been found out. But there is a godly sorrow. This is the way Paul puts it. If you want to look it up later, it's 2 Corinthians 7. Verse 11, see that what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness to obey, what eagerness to clear yourselves of wrongdoing, what indignation against alarm uh, against evil, what alarm that we might fall into sin again, what longing for purity, what concern for all those damaged by our sin, what readiness uh, to set things uh, right. That, that's, what, that's what David calls a broken and contrite heart that God will not. Despise God doesn't scorn us when we fall. He takes the worst that we've done. And if we bring it to him and we admit our wrongdoing, he begins to redo and unmake the mistakes and, and remake our, our lives and make us better than we've ever, ever been before. One of George MacDonald's characters says, when a man or woman repents and humbles himself, their God is to lift them up and higher than they ever were before. You may have to live with the consequences of your of your actions. You know my story of the nail in the wall. You can pull out the nail. You may not be able to pull out the hole. But I can tell you, God can make your life and your relationship with him sweeter and better than it ever was before. That's why David says in this psalm, one of his penitential psalms, Now I'm going to teach you transgressors God's ways. Before, he had been harsh. His ways were harsh. But having gone through this horrible sin and recovered from it, he could, He could talk about God's gracious uh, ways. The remedy, as C.S. Lewis said, is really and truly to believe in the forgiveness of sins. A great deal of our anxiety to make excuses comes from not really believing in it, from thinking that God will not take us to himself again unless he is satisfied that some sort of case can be made out in our favor. But that wouldn't be forgiveness at all. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, that sin that is left over without any excuse, after all allowances have been made, and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. That and only that is forgiveness, and that we can always have from God if we ask for it. So rather than mourn your humiliation, just reach out and, and accept God's, God's grace. There is a way back. And it's not through further temporizing of the sin. It's not through justifying yourself or defending yourself. The only way back is acknowledgement and confession and repentance and turning away from that sin with a godly sorrow and accepting God's grace to go on. And God will make you better than you ever were before, even from your sins. God can draw good. Let's pray, Father. Your, uh, our Lord's disciples, very often commented that His sayings were hard, and uh, we read a passage like this, and it, it really does sober us. But at the same time, it, it does put starch in our spine; it stiffens our resolve. It, gives us the the desire to be the men and women that God has called us to be in in the face of our world with all of its inducements, temptations to sin. May we be pure in heart and in body. And uh, we thank you for that amazing grace and incredible uh, love that that, uh, speaks directly to our shame and our humiliation takes away our guilt, and puts us on our feet again, and gives us the grace to live with the consequences of our sin and and to go on growing in, in that grace and in our capacity to touch the lives of others. May that be so, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.